0: You are listening to Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and on the World Wide Web at weru.org. Listeners supported and volunteer powered. Stay tuned. Talk of the Towns is coming up next.
1: operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be a benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. Think back to your own middle or high school experience. If you visited one of those classrooms today, what differences would you see in how teachers teach and students learn? Our program this morning um, will talk about those evolving um, schools, and uh, we'll examine some of the trends, see where learning and teaching and schools are headed. Our guests are Gordon Donaldson of College of Education at University of Maine. Welcome to you, Gordon.
2: Welcome, Ron. Glad to be here.
1: And Judith Cox of the Educational Studies Program at College of the Atlantic. Welcome to you, Judith. Good morning. Thanks. We'll be joined shortly um, by phone by Craig Kesselheim of the Great Schools Partnership. So we'll begin um, this morning by asking uh, Gordon and and uh, Judith a little bit about their own background. Um, Gordon, you were a um, teacher, teaching principal, and then moved to higher education. Is that how I remember it?
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We we sometimes as as uh, the the K through twelve pre K twelve community doesn't like necessarily to be. Considered lower education in relation to higher education, Ron, <laughs> but yes. Yeah, I've I've started out teaching in Philadelphia and taught in Boston and, and I've spent uh, three years teaching on North Haven, SAD7, and then uh, was the principal, uh, secondary principal in Ellsworth for seven years before going to the university. I've been there since... 1983.
1: Mm, and what's your role at the university at this point? I'm
2: a professor of education, and I'm, I work uh, mostly, uh, entirely, with graduate students teaching courses in uh, leadership and research.
1: Mm, great. Judith, a little bit about your, your background um, in education.
3: Well, I did start out teaching uh, as well, teaching middle level and high school English. And I've worked in a wide variety of contexts in education over the years, and um, Had the good fortune to work with children really as young as one month Mm. old through (laughs) adults. And um, um, been a district administrator, was the curriculum coordinator in Union 98, down in Montessori Island in the Outer Islands, and um, worked at the Department of Education for several years uh, running a Title II grant that worked on teacher induction program in Maine, which I'm happy to say is law now Mm, (laughs) Uh, and everybody's sort of trying to pay attention to an important topic that strangely was ignored for Mm. a long time in any systematic way and now i'm at the college of the atlantic um director of the small educational studies program there great
1: and we're also joined by phone by Craig Kesselheim. Craig is um, with the Great Schools Partnership. Welcome to you, Craig. Where where are you this morning?
0: Thank you all. Um, hi, Judith. Hi, Gordon. Um, good, morning. good morning. I'm at Katahdin Middle and High School in um, in uh, Staceyville, um, extreme northern Penobscot County for the day.
1: And tell us a little bit about um, your educational background. I, I recall that you were a graduate of College of Atlantic, and, uh, and now are you with something called the Great Schools Partnership. Tell us about that, that path that you took.
0: Okay. Um, well, I worked uh, briefly in Maine after leaving College of Atlantic. Uh, my first teaching job was a fairly non traditional appointment at uh, the Chewanke Foundation. They had an alternative high school there called Maine Reach. Um, and subsequent to that, I ended up teaching uh, middle school science um, for six years in southwestern Wyoming. Um, I've been a, a director of education at a um, science school called Teton Science School in, um, near Jackson, Wyoming, and um, returned to Maine in um, 1990. I was a grad student um, in science education at UMaine, got to know Gordon pretty well there, Was working for Maine Math and Science Alliance on a state um, initiative to uh, improve and reform science and math statewide. Um, I've been a school principal K through 8 in Tremont on MDI, Uh, curriculum coordinator. I actually um, was lucky enough to have Judith's job after Judith uh, departed. And uh, for the last five years, going on my sixth year now, I've been working for the Great Schools Partnership. Um, They're based in southern Maine, but we work all across the state and now um, in the New England region and elsewhere in the country to um, support and both provide what we call school coaching and also technical support for a variety of school improvement and reform initiatives and one that um, my colleagues are working on that might be of interest uh, to this program is a regional effort in New England that brings state departments of education together to um, approach Secondary schooling in a coordinated way. So this is um, sort of a working working across state borders and at the at the Department of Ed level. Great.
1: Right. Well, i i I thought of all of you when when uh, someone asked me what they thought, um, uh, what what I thought was happening in in um, education, and I said, well, let's have a show that talks about some of the trends that you folks are seeing. Um, that is, um, it may not transform schools wholeheartedly, as as Judith was talking before the show, um, but it's certainly. Um, chipping away at um, what schools used to be. Certainly when I grew up in a, in a classroom, I, I think there's quite a bit of change that's happened since then. So I'd like your perspectives on a number of different trends that that uh, um, we've kind of identified. One is, is thinking about how students learn and what, what do we know now about how students learn and how does that lead to different ways of teaching? So who, who'd like to start and, and, and provide some perspectives there. Um, Judith, you want to f- get started about how students learn? Uh, what, what do we know about that?
3: Well, what we know is that they learn differently mm. <laughs> from mm. each other. And I was thinking, um, and oddly enough, I, I had not really thought about this before, but there is um, you know, increased uh, attention to this idea of differentiating for to meet all students needs and um it's not that it's new that students all have these different needs but it seems like since the standards movement there has been much more discussion about that Mm -hmm. and so there's a a, you know a good thing i mean i think a lot of us thought this is good we can have common standards for all students and that'll help having the whale unit be done three years in a row or what whatever kinds of things there are many examples of that, but um, that they learn differently. And I think the um, challenge is, you know, how how do teachers who have very diverse classrooms and always have really uh, transform the way they're teaching in order to really meet these student needs? Mm-hmm. And... Um, the uh, i mean we've had the multiple intelligences research for years how does that transfer into classrooms and um i think that kind of now that we're kind of related to this we've been thinking about the growth of service learning approaches to teaching and the project project based learning and um place based education the, these things i think are are a way that educators are thinking the, these will help us meet um, uh, diverse learning styles. and.
1: So could, could one of you summar, summarize what those different styles are? I mean, in broad brush. Gordon, how to, mm-hmm. how, what are the different kinds of ways that, that mm-hmm. students learn?
2: Well, Ju- Judith mentioned um, the multiple intelligences research that sort of undergirds a lot of this. And I guess I would... Um, what, what that has taught us is that is that some kids need to learn by being physically active. Um, some kids uh, need to learn by, um, by what I guess we would associate with the arts, by, by being assisted to think more globally first and then break their knowledge, uh, the, pres- the precise disciplines down from that as opposed to historically what we've done is we've tried to teach the disciplines by breaking them apart and separating them out grade by grade and marching kids through you know the worst form of this is workbooks uh-huh. uh, all the way through so the the breakthrough in brain in brain research to understand how brains develop but then the association of that to multiple the multiple ways that we are intelligent and i want to i'd like to emphasize the word intelligence in that, because we uh, we in this country and education generally worldwide has been for the past century focused on a single definition of intelligence and a uh, much much too confining, and uh, this disadvantaged kids and adults has it has for generations, and um, so the challenge Judith mentioned of how do, how do we how do we identify what the various styles are, how do we then define them not as aberrant, you know, not as abnormal, mm-hmm. <laughs> which we've, public schools and and independent schools have done for years is, uh, is the challenge, I think.
1: And it must be you know? a challenge for a, a teacher to say, okay, I've got three or four different primary learning styles yeah. how people learn in one classroom how do I mm-hmm. work with all of those students and and uh, you know advance learning um, for all of them
2: yeah yeah another piece of that just to throw it a quickie is is we've learned a lot more about the d- the d- different developmental rates that okay. kids learn and some of that uh, at least in the general picture is is gender related um, we could go on from there but but teachers having to Say, all right, well, this, this boys generally don't develop literacy c- competence as early as girls do, generally. That doesn't mean all. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how do I adjust mm-hmm. <coughs> in my grade two classroom to the fact that uh, boys may not learn to read quite as fast? Mm-hmm. And how do I make them understand that that doesn't mean they're dumb? Mm-hmm. which, you know, mm-hmm. is, a, is a major issue. Craig, how would, I'm going to get
1: to see if Craig has anything to add before we go on. Uh, Craig, anything I, I, to add?
2: Ron, I want to build on a comment that you
0: uh, inserted there having to do with um, the challenge at the teacher level, and um, I think that that is a, a given, and it's one of the dynamics that's at play every single day, and that is um, we have our teaching goals in mind um, and some ways that we hope, to help kids get to those teaching goals. But we also have a a room full of 15, 20, 25 um, energetic kids, and they come to us with different home lives and different um, learning preferences, which we've been discussing, uh, and different achievement patterns. Um, And I think uh, uh, to to build on this um, thread of this conversation, it's becoming less common and certainly less acceptable to hear a teacher say well I taught it to them they better get it It's now more common to say I taught it and some of them got it and I'm trying to figure out how to pitch it a different way or how to break the class into a different maybe uh, have a a small conference in a corner uh, for the last 15 minutes of class with kids who want to review it in a different way or maybe uh, offer two different ways for two or three different pathways to uh, complete an assignment I have a learning goal in mind but I'm now becoming more flexible in how I will allow kids to get to that learning goal goal. So um it does we're 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 trying to think about or trying to locate ways that it gets into the to the mindset of teachers and their daily thinking about uh how they do a lesson.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Sorry
0: about the background phone noise here.
3: That's all right. Mm-hmm. Judith? Oh, um I was just gonna say that the um, uh at the state level oh. and not just the state, um, there is this Now new emphasis, which isn't actually isn't a new way of thinking about it to me, but instead of standards referenced, they're now talking about standards based in terms of the students meeting the learning results, the parameters of essential instruction is what we now call them. And um, uh, it seems like there is a opening there to kind of get back on the train with thinking if it's standards based, then what does it take? I think there's potential here. So, what does it take for all students to meet these learning goals? And to you know, to Craig's point just now, what what will it take? And how? What different ways can we um, give entry points for these? And where, finding out where kids are, and not just serving up one dish for everybody. Mm-hmm. And even the meeting in the in the corners is an advancement. But really, I, I think teachers have to look at it really differently Mm -hmm. if um you know standards based the other thing i just say i think is related to this is the um habit of looking at new practices and new emphases or whatever in a linear way just that it gets piled on and no wonder teachers feel how can i possibly do this i think that's part of the problem with this uh, differentiating for all learners how can i possibly do it um, and I think we'll probably get to those challenges later on in terms mm-hmm. of the time for teachers mm-hmm. to do this. I think it's not ill will. I, I, I think it's a huge job and it means rethinking the way you think of your class. And Gordon mm-hmm. um, mentioned the in- integration, I, the, another way to mm-hmm. <coughs> make the stack lower and integrate content as another way for kids to engage
1: so that they're learning different things in in one in one project, one project. or what? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. You've you've used the term um, place-based education and service learning. Could you just tell us, um, remind us, what those those concepts have to do with?
2: Judith can do that better than I well, can. Well, uh, I'll I, <laughs> and Craig. I,
3: um, and Craig, you should jump jump in too. But uh, service learning is is very simply, um, uh the opportunity for students' classrooms to respond to, I think this is the pure, purest definition, mm-hmm. respond to community needs uh-huh. um, and um, through that be learning. Um,
1: so it's pop, not, it's not the, community service. No. Not it's t-
3: service learning. Yes. So a, yeah. Though a you could learn from community right. service, <laughs> but it's more intentional the way it's being used in schools. Yeah. Yeah. Craig, want to add to that?
0: Um, just that I think that, that the challenge and opportunity is that um, the details have to vary, obviously, from site to site. Uh, the opportunities vary um, whether you're rural or urban, um, sparsely populated or dense, um, as well as what the, um, the uh, community um, receptivity and, and needs might be. But the ideal um, would certainly be uh, uh, a design that allows for Learning in the content area, so that the teacher sees the relevance and applicability, and obviously so would the students. Uh, and at the same time, there's a—I think there is a citizenship component um, mm-hmm. and uh, a kinetic or physical um, reinforcement for you know. It's I, I think that's uh, perhaps um, supporting one of the learning styles that was identified earlier too. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. And how um, about? Pl- oh, go ahead, Gordon.
2: Well, actually, I wanted to go back.
0: Okay, can yes. I do that? Yes, please. <laughs> thinking
2: about the thinking about the diversity of children. Uh-huh. One thing we haven't mentioned, Craig touched upon it briefly, is um, is the effect of um, of family and family conditions mm. uh, yes. on on kids' readiness to learn when they come to school, and not just when they come to school as pre-K or K, but when they come to school as tenth graders and eleventh graders, and that we've learned. A lot more about um, the effects of family, uh, family climate, family culture, of social class, on kids' ability to learn, and, and statistically, there is uh, th- there is a very strong correlation between test scores and uh, and family background, um, things like the level of family of, par- of parental education, uh, the kind of income parents make, the number of books there are in um, in the home. Uh, folks have done some really interesting studies of conversation styles in homes and found that it varies with uh, sort of the literacy level of parents. And this all reinforces the vital importance, I think, of, of the parent-school connection and that people in schools understand and take into account the, the important role that they can have in helping parents understand mm-hmm. what they can do to reinforce things at home. It's very difficult work, but statistically at least, it's pr- it probably explains mm-hmm. the biggest variation in in test scores in main schools. And that, you that, note that that's test
1: scores, not intelligence. Exa- exactly, uh-huh. yes. <clears throat> because
2: right. exactly. Because right. exactly, that's the point. Right. right. Um, uh, mm-hmm. we're yeah. talking
1: about trends in education um, our guests include Gordon Donaldson from University of Maine Judith Cox of College of Atlantic and she's with the Educational Studies Program and Craig Kesselheim of the Great Schools Partnership and uh, Craig is talking with us from Katahdin um, Regional School up there um, in Stacyville um, this morning um, Craig anything to add to this little bit of conversation
0: um, well perhaps just a, a, um, an example that um, uh, and there are many, I'm, I'm, I hope I'm not ignoring other important ones, but in Hancock and Washington County, which might be of interest to your listener uh, base, um, there are, are farm-to-school initiatives now that um, are generating a lot of interest. They reflect a similar um, thrust across the country in developing ties not only between school kitchens and local farms, but um, the classroom curriculum and food systems. So you're seeing um, more interest and work in um, uh, students learning about their food supply, uh, also their diet and nutrition, and spending hands-on time in either local farms or their own school greenhouse or garden. Um, and there are examples all over um, the down east region from Tremont School in Trenton to Surrey and Mount Desert. Um, and uh, East Machias um, and, and Eastport, and there are two farm-to-school coordinators who are making uh, those kinds of connections happen, both for kids and schools and farmers, and I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a new network that has great uh, promise and potential and obviously is very significant to uh, both our health as well as our, our kids' education.
1: Great, and and um, how does that then? that We've talked a little bit about service learning. What about place-based education, Judith? We'll start with you.
3: Well, <clears throat> it's uh, it's kind of w- what it says uh, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, providing students opportunities to learn within within their communities, um, and there are all kinds of applications of it. I was thinking that in uh, Southwest Harbor, the uh, the middle school there has been. Very active on environmental issues in the mm. community and effectively so mm-hmm. and um, it's it's been a great source of meaningful learning for the for the kids uh, they've gained respect in the town they've uh, you know with the support of the school and so forth they've um, raised money for a solar panel working on mm. a wind turbine (coughs) and and the kids are just so passionate about this it's Mm. it's uh, moving to Mm. listen to them because Mm -hmm. they become the spokespeople Mm -hmm. so it there is this voice part of it and engagement in their learning that seems meaningful and that is meaningful and um, you know helping build a a shed for the school uh, which is responding to a need but it's happening where they are and these kids can (coughs) look at it and think my kids might use this shed when they come to PEMATIC mm-hmm. school. It's a, it's a rich opportunity, mm-hmm. and the learning takes place. Well, the school is in the town, but it take these takes place mm-hmm. outside the walls, you right. know. And um, I think in, there are increasing examples of that in our region. Mm-hmm. I think, and and the other thing is the um, teaching. Uh, I think this is one of the things that we had talked about before. Uh, sustainability. Issues through the content, and that the time is right for that kind of thing. And Mm. that doesn't have to be text text based learning, Mm -hmm. seat time learning. Mm -hmm. They can really be engaged in that. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I think the the place based provides some neat opportunities to to meld um, historical study. For example, what is what? Where did this place come from? Who's been here before? What were they like? With with this this sort of scientific examination of the geography and the geology and the ecosystem that folks are living in what's the relationship between those two and it's pretty much endless mm-hmm. the number of inquiries that kids can get involved in and at the different different age levels and what's neat about that uh, the examples I've seen is that then there's a there is a there's a network of place-based learning projects so that you can then begin to compare yourself with a School or a community in southern Arizona, and talk about so you sort of build your understanding of the world and your understanding of your own place mm-hmm. in it um, from inside out, sort of. And so then, then you neat. ask the
1: question, "What's different and what's the same about it, my it, place and your place?"
2: Exactly, mm-hmm. and the the um, you know, in, in, I the the, the the internet provides a wonderful way to kind of connect people that I way, visually as well as mm-hmm. through data and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, I want to turn the the, the corner just a little bit. Um, we've been talking about how students learn, and therefore what that does to to the the, the, the teacher in us, and and how we uh, to respond. How about how teachers learn? What have What have we learned about that process? And and how is that beginning to change schools? Gordon, we'll start with you.
2: Okay. All right. Um. Well, we're learning, we're learning as much about how teachers learn. <laughs> Perhaps not as much, but we're <laughs> learning some important new things and, and that uh, probably teachers have known all along. <laughs> and that is that they learn, they learn the most useful information about their trade by uh, examining their own performance and, th- and having the opportunity to reflect on, on what they're doing with children in classrooms every day. And um, they're learning. And getting
1: and some feedback about that. And
2: getting some feedback from that, mm-hmm. and um, which presents a huge challenge for school systems, school districts, because generally school days are planned in such a way that teachers don't have the opportunity for that. If they have some time to prepare, generally in the middle and in high schools, um, that time is not organized in a way, and it's difficult to get feedback from a colleague and so on and so forth. The other aspect of that is, is learning about themselves by studying their students. So the whole assessment uh, push in the last 10, 15 years has, has focused a lot on whether teachers can measure how well kids are making state standard. But the really important thing about that is that that's a way of providing ongoing information to teachers about the 24 kids in their class. Mm. Or if they're in high schools, the 150 that they teach every day, which is a problem in and of itself. But we'll save that for later. (laughs) Uh, And so so what do you learn about how successful you are as a teacher and what you're doing every day by looking at the data from your kids? Mm. And that's... That's very rich and it's proved very powerful as a way to improve schools, but but it's a huge challenge. We don't know how to do that mm. institutionally.
1: So a lot of what what I uh, think of is we we um, teach as we were taught. Mm-hmm. So our experiences of school um, mold us, unless. We get something that changes that um, mm-hmm. system. So I would imagine that all of you were involved in in at least asking present teachers to question um, their past and and get real, get present. Greg, um, anything to to add to that?
0: Well, um, we're terribly guilty of creating acronyms and and um, <laughs> names that are um, hard to penetrate. But um, we nationally and certainly it's quite becoming quite prevalent in Maine we form groups of professionals in schools that are usually called professional learning communities um, Short shorthand would be plc's and um... professional learning communities are are um, i think we're trying to to undo some of the of the designed isolation that that um... has been traditionally part of working in a school we've really created schools historically to isolate and separate teachers not only departmentally but really uh, you know, one person um, to their own room. And now we're trying to undo some of that and create collegial connections um, that are hopefully even built into the daily schedule, common planning periods, then facilitated uh, from within by teachers so that they deliberately enter into deeper conversations, not teacher um, lunchroom chit-chat. We all like to talk shop all the time, but more structured and disciplined and um, supportive collegial um, work over what Gordon alluded to. You know, wh- what can I learn about my teaching from my students' um, samples of work? How could I bring a lesson to my colleagues for improvement or even to understand why it was particularly successful, to understand the, um, the winning attributes or the things that I want to do more of in my room? Uh, how can we collectively learn from... Our data and what's exciting about professional learning communities um, not only is uh, it's exciting to see so many of them um, being supported around around the state and the nation, but um, they're they're very sustainable. Um, you don't have to wait for a guest speaker from um, across the state boundary to come in on on that one or two professional development days you've got um, you know uh, in your calendar. But you can do this on a weekly or even or a monthly, but sometimes even more than more frequently than once a week basis. It's a, it's, a, it's a way for teachers to um, support each other's ongoing professional growth. And that in itself is simple and sustainable and very, very powerful.
1: So this seems to, to move from um, kind of team teaching, you know, the, the idea that you're planning to do something together, but more um, of the reflection process that Gordon says is so missing
3: um, for the teacher mm-hmm. experience. I, just one little thing uh, to add to Craig's point about the speaker-from-outside hmm. model, um, and the whole professional development design, to me, I think that is um, important to examine. And um, uh, Bonnie Tai is education faculty at the college, and we've been talking about that and thinking about teacher learning as opposed to even calling it a professional development hmm. workshop. Mm-hmm. And um, and that when that happens, when it's not during the school day, but whatever it is that's been... Made available, that um, the the it isn't a presentation model. That that the teachers participate as learners. That that's and because when you opened up saying how do teachers learn or whatever that mm-hmm. qu- question was, they learn like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Only that's not the opportunity that we have provided <laughs> for them. And um, so I I I just wanted to to say mm-hmm. that that I think that is an area where in terms of achieving some of these hopes and ideals that we have, that um, teachers are key. I mean, there's a lot of research around student success if if they have highly effective teachers and all of that, but we need to address that. Mm.
1: We're, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU, about halfway through our program. We'd love to have your calls as we talk about trends in education with our guests, Gordon Donaldson of the University of Maine College of Education, Judith Cox of College of the Atlantic and the Educational Studies Program there, and Craig Kesselheim of the Great Schools Partnership. You can participate by calling one 866 Six two five nine three seven eight. I'm sure you've got some questions or comments as you talk. You think about these trends in in uh, education. Um, one of you in in my uh, kind of survey of, of trends mentioned something called the de isolation of teacher classroom practices. And Craig, you mentioned that that we we tended to see a, a classroom as that that's my classroom rather than our classroom in some way. Tell us a little bit about, more uh, about
0: that. Sure. Um, There's one of the schools that's uh, uh, actually a couple of them up up here in um, what we call the Southern Heuristic region um, have been developing um, very simple um, arrangements by which teachers can step into one another's classrooms and watch their colleagues teach. Um, In some cases, it's for most of a period or the whole class period, and there's an opportunity for a a simple debriefing. Um, In other cases, it's It's much shorter, but in and of itself, that represents really a significant uh, and perhaps for some um, a a threatening change to walk into somebody's classroom. Perhaps there's similar um, pressures and taboos, you know, like surgeons walking into somebody else's um, uh, operating theater or something. I don't don't know if (laughs) if those occur, but for teachers that, you know, they're so accustomed to uh, teaching in their rooms and, and, and doing their best work, but in isolation, now um, we're, we're trying to uh, support schools in, in, um, in kind of erasing those artificial boundaries. So that's been very well received. And, and in addition, uh, Great Schools Partnership developed a fairly simple but web-supported system of classroom, uh, what we call walkthroughs, where in a very short time, a few minutes, um, a colleague walks into a room and documents the attributes of teaching and learning, what, you know, for the predominant time... Um, of the observation what was the teacher's main activity what were students primarily doing uh what was the level of cognitive demand what what kind of thinking was being expected of students and those are recorded on a wireless device or or back in the classroom on a, on a laptop and over time teachers and uh as a whole school they get to learn about those patterns of teaching and learning that are be, that are becoming evident in um in the whole school and they're tremendously productive discussions that come from simply examining those data.
1: Mm. And what you, what's, what you mentioned is that it is, isn't the principal coming in. These are colleagues, right. and that's that's probably a whole different process there. That's right. We have a call. Let's go ahead and, and find out where the listener is calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please. Good morning.
4: Hey, uh, good morning. This is David. I'm calling from East Blue Hill at the moment. Um, I have a an observation and a question both Uh Thank you for the show. Uh, I think, it's a, of course, it's very, very important topic. And, um, uh, I'm especially interested in the uh, the aspects that deal with uh, what you call place-based education, uh, especially as that would uh, unfold in relation between the, the school community and the food production community, uh, and uh, uh, Other many different uh, community uh, relationships, which we could. Uh, I'd like to hear a lot more talk about what the different uh, potentials were. Uh, uh, my, my observation in relation to that is that uh, I would think that this kind of a uh, Relation to the, the the school and the community would be more difficult uh, in a consolidated school district than in a smaller, uh, locally, locally uh, connected school district. And um, my question is whether uh, there's been any uh, research or work done in the role that uh, fellow students can play in. Educating the slower learners in their in their midst. I know that in the uh, in the Waldorf education system, a a lot of uh, effort is put into uh, forming the the children as a you know as a body themselves into an an educative unit where uh, they can relate with uh, with care, concern, and humility to. Uh, the problems that are uh, uh, manifesting in some of the slower learners. Uh, so that the, the kids, rather than feeling that they're separated off into groups of ones that are mm-hmm. basically good and ones that are basically bad, are, are you know, some, some kids in a corner and the other kids in the middle or some mm-hmm. of system like that, where all the kids are involved together in teaching each other so that nobody progresses until they all progress. Sort of a, a social model like that, where you know and nobody gets to have until we all get there, mm. and we, we, you know it's our it's our job to help each other do that, and we can do it very, very well because we understand our our common problems, and that way we don't you know tend so much to our problems of elitism and bullying, which are so common.
1: great, thank you, David, for your call, and we'll get some comments from our guests. I'll just list our phone number one more time. one 625 9378 as we talk about trends in education. Well lots to th- to think about um, from David's call. Let's start with that last piece about um, I-, I was thinking um, Gordon when you were talking about the different ways in in which um, intelligence is is expressed and different ways in people learn. We're actually helping people in to prepare for their lives in the world mm-hmm. where all of those different intelligence exists. Mm-hmm. So this caller is saying, um, does learning happen in yeah. those kinds of settings
2: yeah absolutely and david uh, david 's observations are right on, I think um, um, that, and I would emphasize uh, emphasize the importance of of recognizing the differences in the in the learners in a team of kids who are going mm-hmm. out to and what popped into my mind. I live in Lemoyne, and the example there is is the school 's involvement with uh, studying the the water, the quality of water, and the quantity of water in town, which they 've been with uh, they've hooked up with the University of Maine and uh, have now I think they're in their third year of collecting data on on water, and um, what you've got there is exactly what David talks about: a group of kids who, who, uh, irrespective of whether they test here, or there, or otherwhere, uh, are working together to create um, a database, and they're presenting it to the town. They're studying it. They're they're involved in it. Uh, and your point, Ron, that—or um, actually, his his point—that what they're learning is—is is how they can work as a social unit, mm-hmm. but also as a unit that can contribute to its community. Uh, and perhaps those skills, which we typically don't um, don't put at the top of our list when we're talking about standards, now uh, are more transferable ultimately to uh, success later on as a citizen, as a worker, than. Um, whether you can remember how to multiply or divide mm-hmm. fractions, so mm. it's a it's a great point. And
1: one of his other um, questions or, or comments was, um, w- "What leads to successful place based education? Is it depending on on how the school is organized, or are there some other aspects that would uh, would uh, um, create success in that area?" Craig, have you got some thoughts about what what are the characteristics of a good um, um, place based education model?
0: Um, well. Just a couple, probably not a comprehensive answer, but um, I, I think that um, quite often these these um, strategies and, and programs first begin with uh, an energized um, teacher, somebody who thinks creatively or has a unique connection, um, or perhaps comes to the teaching world with a skill set from outside, um, maybe a prior career or or other work, and um, they want to they want to. Do something different uh, in school, and what um, that is often where you get a lot of excitement and attention generated um, around you know something innovative and, and community-based. Um, but it it when it, to the extent that it relies on that energized teacher, then you're you're tapping into the energy just of that individual. And you're also hoping that that person never leaves. <laughs> if it's a really great program, please don't go. You know, um, and so I'm always asking schools to look for ways to um, make something good systematic. Whether it's a policy that says um, at the school board level, uh, you know, sort of guiding language that we as a school want to always have service learning as a component that would be sprinkled generously across the grade span. Here, uh, we would like to encourage both individuals and departments to find ways to do that so they don't have to micromanage but they could set sort of a gu- uh, a guiding expectation or philosophy and in a similar vein principals can be very supportive in advocacy um, you know providing resources perhaps finding small pockets of time for the individuals to do some planning and things of that kind otherwise uh... you know you worry about the burnout factor so there can be i think schoolwide uh, school-wide and systemic support is very important for long for um long-term. Sustainability.
1: The other, the other thing that I think of is the um, the, the farm to school piece and how m- many parents are getting involved in that process. And that's yeah. that's um, a real gr- great way to spread the energy, to involve the parents in their kids' learning and to get the kids to see, oh, there's different parents out there doing different things in our community. I mean, there's a cycle or a circle there. Yeah. Right? yeah. I'll list our phone number one more time: one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. As we talk about trends in education, Judith, who are you going to make a comment Mm
3: -hmm. well good job Craig (laughs) because I think in in a nutshell uh, that's um, the situation and the challenges Um, uh, I I just was thinking that um, school culture for all of this is so important and I think community representatives like the caller and parents and so forth can ask for that Uh, you know who are we and how do we you know the culture thing This is who we are, and this is how you know this is who we are. Mm -hmm. And I think that if uh, place-based education, as an example, is effective, um, to take it away from if you hit the teacher, you've got a good activity, then it's one of those things that has to be enculturated. And the other thing that's really important is that these things don't happen by fiat. Um, In each classroom, there's got to be this feeling that we are are. we're a community of learners and i think um dave's point is an important one and even if um there's no you know process for kids helping other kids or whatever if it's a community of learners then that's the way they're viewed and just let's say this one last thing one of parker palmers um favorite ways of talking about the community is that it's there's the students and there are the teachers and there's the great thing in the middle and so that uh, both the students and the teachers are equally examining whatever uh, whatever it is and um
1: Anyway, so just, mm-hmm. uh, just for l- other listeners, Parker Palmer is an educator and a writer, and, and yeah. his books are really important to yeah. this whole process. Yes, Courage to teach. Courage see. to teach. Yeah. We have another call. I'll go ahead and take that call. If you'd give us your name and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment, please.
4: I'm calling from Hancock.
1: Go, go ahead. ahead, yes, thank you.
0: And my question is, uh, your guests have been alluding to teacher education. And I'd like to know how we can improve undergraduate teacher education and continue to provide relevant professional development because it seems to me that there's a disconnect between old school thinking and new school reality Mm -hmm. at the university level. And I wonder how they're addressing that.
1: Sounds like a great question for Gordon. Thanks for your call this morning, 1 625 9378. You'd like to have a question or a comment. Gordon, um, how about that?
2: Well, it may be a great question for me, but I'll have to say I'm not directly involved <laughs> in teacher preparation at the University of Maine, uh, although it's a very important aspect of what we do. Uh, the caller is absolutely correct that it's it's there have for forever been real difficulties in in blending the experience of learning to teach um, on ex- on, through attending courses and classes on a university campus and then actually putting that, that knowledge to work. And some of the most promising um, teacher preparation experiences are those that begin, that expose um, future teachers to classrooms immediately. They don't they don't stall that until you um, get a degree and then you go and get a job and decide it isn't for you or you're not good at it, which is a real real issue. Uh, that's a very difficult type of teacher development to invest in and make work, at least at the scale that we do at the University of Maine. We've, we've had some wonderful um, innovations in the past, but they haven't stuck. Uh, and I think probably Judith's experience or, or type of program at COA and the, uh, the ETEP program at USM, which is also smaller in scale, are two very good examples of how this can work well. Uh, I don't really have any solutions to how how um, a, a large institution like ours can, can do this um, on the scale we're trying to do it and do it well. Mm. One other quick su- suggestion is that, um, is that uh, you, a teacher should not be certified until they've taught for couple of years mm. um, rather than get certified at the end of their when they get their degree there really ought to be a built-in period to extend their learning into the time when they're fully practicing and uh, some states have, have done that and uh, it it turns out to be somewhat expensive, so we're not mm-hmm. going to see that in the near future in mm-hmm. Maine. Mm-hmm. Well,
1: I'll get some comments from Judith, mm-hmm. and then uh, perhaps uh, Craig also can address the notion of of uh, uh, professional development. We've we'll mm-hmm. begun to talk about that. So first uh, to Judith Cox of College of Atlantic, w- w- teacher preparation. How how are you doing that at COA? Mm.
3: Uh, well, this is an <laughs> the the important um, question about. Schools and mm. the, f- the future. Um, uh, well, we're very small, but we do get students into classrooms with every uh, uh, education course that they that they take, and uh, we have a great partnership with the schools. So it, it in our region, so it makes it pr- pretty easy. Um, we really emphasize um an interdisciplinary approach it's easy it's the mission of well i shouldn't say it's easy but it's the mission of the college and so we try to infuse that approach in, in um, anything that's offered as an education course but it's also their experience there and um an emphasis on um, student-centered teaching and um and h- how you engage students and i don't want to get into jargon but you know we use a model of planning that um is about whether or not students know and understand and can do something and how can they demonstrate it as opposed to one the one-size-fits-all model and it is a dilemma in, in terms of uh, pre-service teachers going into classrooms as generous and open as they are if you talk about the ideal uh, and it's not necessarily being implemented in classrooms so there is a lot of, of uh, I don't know. Trying to learn from the model that exists, and and for us as we coach them to understand, well, so or to ask the question, how would you how would you do this if this was your choice in terms of how this literacy was taught? And we really try to have them um, complete a, an integrated unit before they leave student teaching to you know to continue to think um, in the ways that we've talked about earlier in the program. Mm-hmm. But it's um, mm-hmm. it is a huge Dilemma and uh, i I am um, say frequently that our schools need human e- public schools need human ecologists, mm-hmm. and I try to c- encourage our students to not be discouraged by um, the lack of systemic change, as Craig mm-hmm. used this word in mm-hmm. public schools mm-hmm. it 's a huge institution, and it's I think sometimes we have overlooked the the sociological issues around school change and have gone mm-hmm. at it at a very Kind of emphasize the program and the standards and the assessment, and there's all that other stuff that I think is what's in the way. But mm-hmm. anyway,
1: Craig, a little bit more about um, uh, what what how we can support teachers uh, moving in these kinds of directions as as w- when they're already teachers, pr- yeah. professional development.
0: Well, I uh, I'd, I'd just like to build on a couple of comments that uh, Gordon and Judith uh, each made. One um, is that once we, I mean. Teachers come into the workforce in from a lot of different pathways um, and some are non-traditional um, and and uh, and some are career changers and others are right out of um, an undergraduate uh, college experience but um, one area I think a weak link for, for public schools is that um, historically we have, um, presume them to be expert as soon as they arrive. They get to school on their first day of, jo- of the job and we say, you know, we'll break a leg, hope you do well, um, and we leave them alone. And um, this is an area I know that Judith has worked very hard on, especially when she was at the Department of Ed, too, is really really um, making, uh, uh, making sure that we pay close attention, uh, really making the first years of teaching a, a high-touch enterprise so that new teachers see a lot of other teachers Um, in different classroom settings, um, have one very meaningful mentor if not more than one and um, get really, um, you know, sort of the maximum resources available so that they become good teachers as quickly as possible um, rather than um, struggling through all of the inevitable um, challenges uh, of being new to a job. So that's really to me um, uh, an ongoing area for improvement and schools you know they go about those those uh, new teacher supports uh, differently according to anything from philosophy to what resources they have to throw at it mm.
1: I'll list our phone number t- one more time, one 625 9378 as we talk about trends in education with Craig Kesselheim of the Great Schools Partnership. He's with us by phone. Judith Cox of College of the Atlantic and Gordon Donaldson of the University of Maine. I'm going to skip over. Um, we had hoped to talk about assessment, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about um, how schools are led and organized. Mm. And um, what's the role of Teachers and principals in school leadership um, these days. So that's there's some changes there too. Gordon?
2: Yes. Yeah. And actually, as Craig was talking, I was thinking on to that topic because the the at a very sort of simplistic level, I think the, the 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 challenge is how to organize schools around teacher learning as well as students learning, and not around the preferences of uh, of the administration. Uh, necessarily, the preferences or management needs of the school district. Um, certainly not the management needs of the Department of Education. <laughs> um, some of which are necessary, but uh, some of which um, are, are really um, pro- creating obstacles for effective work. And and that that means a number of things to me. But one is that we've got to stop thinking about uh, the only leadership in a school coming from an administrator. Um, schools can't be led well if we wait around for the principal to do it. School districts cannot be led well if we think that the superintendent is the only leader. So the whole whole notion of teachers as leaders simply recognizes the fact that some of the more powerful influences, positive influences in schools, are, are teachers on one another. In fact, that influence is probably stronger than the influence of a number of principals on teachers. And um, t- principals now are understanding that leadership in a school is a team thing. They need to, they need multiple, uh, and um, we speak of that actually as almost in the same way we speak of kids needing differentiation. We need to differentiate the way leadership happens, and we need to focus it around around what people need to learn, so that. A school is a place where everybody's learning, not just where kids are expected to learn. It's too, compli- too complex, as Judith said, too challenging a task to get 100% of those kids learning as, to as high a standard as we want them all to, to let other things get in the way. So um, it's a, a, I could go on, but I think probably I should stop and, and give Craig and Judith the chance to weigh in on that.
1: Judith, um, how, how how do you approach this notion of school leadership? And I think each of you have have in your careers have played different roles, all of which have have an influence on the culture of an institution, and that's leadership.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, what is the question?
1: <laughs> <laughs> question. I mean, how are you um, thinking about um, changes in how schools are led, and the and the role of teachers in that leadership mm-hmm. process? Mm-hmm.
3: Well. Um, I agree with the teachers as leaders thing, for one, and we've also talked a lot about that, again, from the point of view of how we offer um, teacher learning opportunities. um, So that one of the things that may come out of it over time is that they um, return to their schools as people who can view themselves in that way and could be viewed by others um, in that way. Um, I mean, my own experience is that... Um, for all of this, I, I mean, I th- I think the goals have to be clear. What mm. is it that we w- mm-hmm. that we want, whether it's at the district level or the school level, and um, that it's a facilitated process that engages everybody. Pr- that parents are not hesitant to go into schools to and still really mm-hmm. you talk to people a lot who say well I did talk to them but they you know but they stood by the teacher and they didn't want to hear what I had to say about my ch-. you know this should not be the environment of schools to, to your point Gordon mm-hmm. about this is too important and too big and too complex to be shutting anybody's voice out and I know it's exhausting but what is more important really mm-hmm. so I don't know there's no easy answer mm-hmm. but I um, <laughs> just, we just keep working at it. I guess.
1: Craig, how about your, your, your view? And, and I think this Great Schools Partnership is really about um, um, school leadership. Tell us a little bit more about how you're approaching this and some of the examples that you're finding well, effective. Well, let
0: me start with a, a couple of um, names of, of groups within a school that wouldn't have, a, have um, been on anybody's radar screen five or ten years ago, at least um, on average. Um, you would not have heard of a leadership team within a school. You would have heard, at least in secondary schools, of department chairs, uh, and now department chair meetings are um, in many schools being transformed to leadership team meetings. And that the agenda is different. The role of the teacher in um, guiding school uh, change is different. Uh, the individual may be the same, but their but their participation is very different, and their ownership of the process. You also would might not have heard of data teams within a school, which is a different kind of shared leadership, you know, owning the patterns of achievement that a school is able to accomplish and figuring out what can we be doing differently. Mm. That's not the, the onus of that is, is shared. It's not just a, a principal's job or a curriculum coordinator's um, worry. Um, and we're absolutely working uh, in the schools we support at um, sort of the, the school as the unit of change. We sometimes say, um, I, I'm directing a math-science partnership. Uh, here in southern Arista County, um, one of the hats I wear. And uh, we're really uh, aware of not only supporting a, a whole group of individual teachers in their professional growth, but we're, in, um, we're working with each school to figure out ways to support their continuous improvement at the school level. And so it does involve um, a very different um, or an additional and I think enriching role or teachers as professionals, it, it can be rejuvenating for a teacher to have an additional kind of uh, participation, a different option for participation uh, above and beyond their classroom role. And so, in in many schools, teachers embrace that; they see it as a great uh, addition to their um, to their uh, quality of you know professional life.
4: Mm.
1: We're at the end of the hour, so I'll ask you to each close briefly by um, asking the question, where, where is this leading? Um, do you have a sense of where this is all leading? Craig, we'll stay with you, and then we'll come back to those in the studio. Craig, that's <laughs> Uh
0: That means Gordon and Judith get more thinking time. Yes, I know. know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'm actually very encouraged. I feel like um, we're getting smarter um, about... How to do schools, and and uh, we're getting more collaborative, uh, both at the local level and the regional level, and so um, there's plenty of work to do, and lots of um, um, scary stories that pop up here and there in public schooling. But there's really um, some very very encouraging trends having to do with um, focusing on kids as individuals and um,
2: and sharing leadership.
1: Great, thanks, Craig. Uh, Gordon,
2: I would I would agree with Craig. I'm generally. Um, uh, educators on the ground are working very hard at at wrestling with these issues um uh i think the the a major challenge for us as a state is to figure out ways to get state government and perhaps the district um in some instances to know how to support that and uh i'm 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 less uh, optimistic um about that at this point but hope that um With some new leadership, we can move forward on that. (laughs) Great. And Judith?
3: Um, I'm encouraged by the kinds of things we've talked about today that I think are, in fact, um, you know, on the increase. Um, I guess that my hope is, though, that we would stay on a path for a while. And I know that there is this, you know, teachers that perennially joke about, well, you know, the cycle of change and all of that. But there is a certain, uh, you know, for at least, well, like almost maybe 20 years now with this standards (laughs) have come back. And I'm not, you know, going there so much as the um, result of us trying to figure out what that means. So I'm hopeful, but I hope we stick with it for a while.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, unfortunately, we've come to that time when I want to remind folks that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with W.E.R.U. began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings at, uh, each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balnane House Highland Music Recording. There's our music. Thanks again to our guests uh, here in the studio, Gordon Donaldson of the University of Maine, Judith Cox of College of the Atlantic, and Craig Kesselheim joined us by phone from the Great Schools Partnership. Thanks to our underwriters, thanks to Matt Murphy for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Ring with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.
3: know how you'll be voting on the Tabor 2 question? On-